Blog Talk Radio. against the facets of the false heresy that was attacking the Colossians. And in the midst of that, he gets into this concept of who Christ is and what Christ can do. And the idea is that you don't need any human philosophy. You don't need any human wisdom. You are complete in Him. Welcome to Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. In 1858, William Boardman wrote a book titled The Higher Christian Life. And the premise of his book was this. A genuine Christian will experience, after his conversion, 
a second blessing from God, a blessing that makes the person instantly holy and even able to reach a state of sinless perfection. Well, is that right? Is that how salvation through Christ works? Do you need something extra, a second blessing, to be truly saved? I invite you to consider that today as John MacArthur looks at the book of Colossians in order to see what it means to be complete in Christ. That's the title of John's series, Complete in Christ. And now with the lesson, here's John. Colossians 2, 10 to 15. Now, in order to introduce our thoughts, I want to just kind of draw your attention to something else other than this passage. And it is the healings of our Lord. Because I think the healings of our Lord illustrate a great principle relative to salvation. So take your Bible and let's go back to the beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew. And I want to see if you, all by yourself, without making uh, me making much editorial comment, can pick out of the verses that I read to you a consistent pattern or principle. Matthew 9.22 Jesus turned about, and when He saw her, He said, and I'm going to read you just the way the old English has it, because the translation, I think, gives the complete meaning of the word. Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Matthew 12:13. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like the other. Matthew 15:28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, Great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Verse 31, Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 5. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Mark 5, Verse 28, For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Verse 34, He said, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Luke 6:10. And looking round about on them, He said, Stretch forth thy hand. He did so, and his hand was restored whole like the other. 7th chapter, 10th verse. They that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Luke 8:48. I know you're seeing a pattern here. Very obvious. Luke 8:48. He said, "Daughter, be of good comfort; thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace." And further on in the 17th chapter of Luke, the 19th verse, he said to him, "Arise, go thy way; thy faith hath made thee whole." The Gospel of John, no less a part of this same thought pattern. John 5, 6, Jesus said to him, Wilt thou be made whole? Verse 14, Behold, thou art made whole. Verse 15, Jesus had made him whole. John 7, 23, If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I have made a man whole on the Sabbath? And the, the, the New Schofield has the, the clear meaning of that. It says entirely well on the Sabbath, whole. 
Now you have the same thing carried out in apostolic miracles uh, as well. In uh, Acts 4.9, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? Be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. You find it again in Acts 9, 34. Peter said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ, make thee whole. Arise, make your bed. And he arose immediately. Now, what you see in all of those passages is a consistency in the style of healing that Jesus did. When Jesus healed somebody, He made them what? Whole, entirely well, no missing parts. Now, there are some synonyms used in those various things, but the dominant term is the word hugies, from which we get the medical word hygiene. And it means healthy. Jesus made them well, healthy, sound, the best translation, entirely well the absence of any infirmity. Now listen, all the healing miracles of Jesus made people completely healthy. There was no progression involved. They were whole instantly. Now you say, what in the world does that have to do with Colossians 2? Just this. It serves, at least in my mind, and I trust in yours, as a beautiful picture of the way Jesus heals spiritually. If Jesus heals physical illness and makes people entirely whole, then that is precisely what is meant by the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, and ye are complete in Him. You could put the word whole in there. Just as Jesus Christ did miracles of healing that made people entirely well. So when Jesus touches a life spiritually and gives salvation, it is entire salvation. It is whole salvation. That person becomes spiritually entirely well. In fact, if you want to choose another Pauline term, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. I mean, that is brand new wholeness. Now, this is nothing new. God has always done that. When David cried out in the midst of his sin in Psalm 51.10, he knew what God would do, and he said, God, create in me a what? A clean heart, whole, no spot, no blemish. When God acts against sin in His saving grace, there is a wholeness. In Ezekiel 11.19, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that's repeated later in Ezekiel, as you know. God says a new heart, a new soul, as it were, a new clean inside so that spiritual healing, which is salvation, is as whole as is the physical. In John 1, 16, it's a great statement. He's talking here about Christ. And John the Baptist says this, of His fullness have all we received. When you were saved, you received of Christ's what? Fullness. You received the fullness of Christ. The wholeness of Christ became your wholeness. So that somebody who becomes a Christian is spiritually whole. And that's Paul's whole standard here. That's his whole point here. He's trying to say to these people, look, 
When you receive Christ, you are made whole. A healthy man doesn't need any more medicine. You don't need human philosophy. You don't need Jewish legalism. You don't need strange pagan mysticism. You don't need abstaining asceticism. You don't need anything. When you received Christ and His salvation, you were made whole. And that's his point. And John says here, John the Baptist in John 1.16, of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. In Galatians at the end, in the sixth chapter, in the 15th verse, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, listen, but a new creation. Same as 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. Listen to 2 Peter 1.3. According as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You say, but when do you get that? Next phrase. Through the knowledge of Him. When do you come to know Christ? At salvation. Then when do you get all things pertaining to life and godliness? The moment you believe in Christ. And so I say, if we can say the miracles of Jesus made people whole we can also say the spiritual transformation of salvation makes them just as whole spiritually. So that when you become a Christian, you are a clean heart, a new heart, a new spirit, a soundness, a wholeness. You become spiritually well. And you don't need to add anything to that. Nothing. Not legalism, asceticism, mysticism, or human philosophy. Now let's look at Colossians 2.10. Colossians 2.10 says, And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Literally, it says, you have been made full. You have been made full in Him. There's nothing missing. Christ fills you up. There, there aren't any other things to add to that. You have been made full with the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Human philosophy based on the traditions of men, as verse 8 says, and the elementary marks of infantile human religion has nothing to add to what is already completed. When Jesus died on the cross, the last thing He said is, It is finished. And when He said it, He meant it not only in terms of His own deed, but in terms of securing the fullness of salvation by that deed. And this One who rules all principality and power, that is, all other beings, all created authorities, all created rulers, particularly referring here to the angelic ones, He rules them all. They have nothing to add to His work. These people who are influencing the Colossians are dead wrong. You don't need to get to God through a series of intermediary aeons or angels. Listen, good angels can't help make you complete, and bad angels can't harm you once you are complete. And so Paul deals a blow to the heresy of human philosophy and religion, which tries to deny that Christ has the power to give complete salvation. And we've discussed that enough to know that that was the basic heresy they were facing. The Colossians who have in Jesus Christ the fountain that never fails would be fools to listen to these false teachers who would have them hew out broken cisterns that hold no water. You don't need philosophy and you don't need angelic intermediaries. Christ is the completer. He makes anything He touches whole. All His healing miracles, whether physical or spiritual, instantaneous and complete. These two things of physical healing and spiritual salvation are brought together, I think, beautifully in the statement of 3 John, verse 2 kind of tucked away there. This is kind of beautiful, really. John is writing to his beloved Gaius, whom he loved in the truth, and he says in verse 2, watch this, it's beautiful. Beloved, beloved Gaius, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. Now watch this. Even as thy soul 
is healthy. He says, oh, Gaius, if your physical body could only be as healthy as your soul, would you be in terrific shape? Now, what's the implication? The implication is that because the guy is a believer, his soul prospers. His soul is healthy. Now, sin plays a part in the practical aspect of this, but positionally, the soul is healthy. And John is simply saying, if your body can only know the health that your soul knows. Back to Colossians 2. You're complete in Him. You have been made complete. Now, what does that mean? You say, well, what do you mean, John, when you say complete? Complete what? What is the definition of that completeness? Well, Paul can't just say it either, so he's got to preach a sermon on it just like I would. He's got to explain it, so he does in the next verses. And he shows you three ways in which you are complete. These are just basic, beautiful things. Three ways, three kinds of completeness, three aspects to our completeness. Number one, complete salvation. Number two, complete forgiveness. And number three, complete victory. Complete salvation, verses 11 and 12. Complete forgiveness, verses 13 and 14. Complete victory, verse 15. Let's look, first of all, at the complete salvation. How are we complete, Paul? Number one, your salvation is complete. Verse 11, "...in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which also you are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised Him from the dead." Now, we'll look at this. He says, look... Your salvation is absolutely complete. There's no need for you to be circumcised. You've been baptized. Now remember, the heresy which the apostle is combating is a somewhat baffling mixture of the pagan beliefs of these various intermediaries and Jewish beliefs of legalism. And along with it, they're trying to propagate the idea that you have to be circumcised. And this isn't anything new. The Judaizers did it in Galatia, didn't they? So that's fine that you believe. That's wonderful that you believe, but you've got to get circumcised. You have to have this operation. Surgical salvation. And he says, look, verse 11, in whom also you are circumcised. Don't let anybody come along and woof you about some circumcision. You've been circumcised. Oh, really? How? How could these Colossian Gentiles have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands? We're not talking about surgery here. We're talking about putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision which Christ did. We're talking about a spiritual operation, not a physical one. Now, all through the history of Israel, there were two views of circumcision. Every little Hebrew boy was circumcised the eighth day after he was born. And that was the sign of his belonging to the nation of Israel. And it became a controversial thing, and there were two schools of thought on it. One, there was the view that circumcision in itself was enough to save. Surgical salvation. If you just got circumcised, you were in the covenant people, and that was it. The physical act is all that was required. And you know, many in the history of the church picked that up, and that's where infant baptism came from. And the Israelite, believing this, would argue it didn't matter whether an Israelite is good, didn't matter whether he was bad, all that mattered was he was circumcised. 
That was the typical view of the Jews in Jesus' day, the typical view of the Jewish leaders in Paul's day as well. That's why in Romans chapter 2, in verse 25, he says, Circumcision profits if you keep the law. It's fine if you keep the law, but if you break the law, circumcision is just like uncircumcision. And my dad used to always tell a story about the fighter that went in, and before every fight, he crossed himself. And a guy says, does it help? Somebody else says, does it if he can punch? <laughs> if he can, it won't do him any good at all. Same thing with circumcision. If you keep the law, it's fine. If you don't, it doesn't help. Therefore, he says, even if the uncircumcision keeps the righteousness of the law, in other words, people who haven't had the operation obey the law, that'll be like being circumcised. They'll move into the covenant blessing. Verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. You see, that's what we're getting at, but this was the typical Jewish view that if you just had the external operation, you were in good shape. But there was another view, and there were some true spiritual Jews. There was a remnant all through Israel's history, and they believed that circumcision was only an outward mark of a man inwardly committed to God. And they believed right. They believed that it just really was simply a symbol on the outside. And what really mattered was the heart. And this had always been what God told them anyway. You can go clear back to Exodus when God was first laying down the rules. Exodus 6, 12, Moses spoke before the Lord saying, The children of Israel have not hearkened to me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me who am of uncircumcised lips? And here you see Moses, at the very beginning, is using the concept of uncircumcision in a metaphorical sense, showing that what God is really after, God is really after, is somebody who's got a circumcised heart, that is heart dedicated to God, circumcised lips, lips dedicated to God, not simply the act of surgery on a child, but that the real issue was the heart. When you repent and believe the gospel, you receive the fullness of Christ, everything you need for a joyous spiritual life. John MacArthur, Chancellor of the Master's University and Seminary, showed you that today as he continued his series called Complete in Christ here on Grace to You Weekend. Now, John, this idea that we are complete in Christ is a far-reaching and profound theological doctrine, and it's filled with practical implications. So talk about that. For you personally, how does this truth affect your everyday life? Well, I think the recognition that nothing is absent in terms of your spiritual needs, your spiritual arsenal. I go back to the idea that you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's, mm. a, that's a complete statement. You have all things that pertain to life and godliness. A promise that would go along with that is, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So the Lord lavishes on us the riches of his grace. I think for a Christian, that's where you have to start. If you want to live confidently as a believer, you've got to recognize that nothing is missing. You know, and that's 
against the grain of the traditional sort of second blessing notion right that you get sort of get saved at the front end but but there's a whole lot of stuff that you haven't gotten you need a second blessing or a third blessing or you need to attain a deeper life or a higher life i mean you know all that terminology that's been around for for yep. centuries and and a true understanding of salvation is that Christ is in all, and Christ is all. I love that. Christ is all and in all. Hmm. So if you have Christ, you lack nothing. So then it just becomes a matter of learning to live my life in the fullness of Christ, to be obedient to him, to make my life constantly an act of worship to him, to seek to love him, to love him more. So I I think you have to start with the fact that you have everything because you have Christ. Nothing is missing. And uh, the means of grace, then, are the ways that you tap into that tremendous treasure. We're doing a series on complete in Christ, taken from Colossians 1 and 2. You don't want to miss this. Um, And to help you along with it, we have a study guide titled Complete in Christ, 250 pages of in-depth study. Gives an outline of every message, detailed explanation, how to understand and apply the truths we're teaching from Colossians. So these study guides are perfect for your use at home or for a Bible study or a class. Uh, many of you received this study guide uh, titled Complete in Christ a few weeks back, and you've been using it along with the series. But for those of you who didn't get that, we have some available, and you, you'll find it a tremendous Tremendous resource and asset. A bit of a discount, by the way, if you purchase 10 or more, which you might want to do for your family or Bible study. Yes, friend, this is a great resource to use while you listen to these lessons again. And it's excellent for studying the book of Colossians with your small group. To order the brand new Complete in Christ Study Guide, get in touch today. Our number here, 855-GRACE, or you can shop at our website, gty.org. The Complete in Christ Study Guide is affordably priced and shipping is free. Again, to order the Complete in Christ Study Guide for yourself or for your home Bible study, call 855-GRACE or go to gty.org. Now, just a reminder about the difference you help make in people's lives when you support Grace to You financially. We recently got a letter from a listener named Molly. She told us how our Bible teaching has helped her distinguish biblical truth from error. And she left the false church she had been trapped in for years, and she now finally enjoys the assurance of salvation. And friend, when you support Grace to You, you help people like Molly all over the world. To partner with us, go to gty.org. One more time, that's gty.org. Or you can call us at 855-GRACE. Now for John MacArthur, I'm Phil Johnson. Thanks for tuning in today and be here next weekend, Easter weekend, when John looks at the cross and the resurrection from God's perspective. In the study titled, Easter Through the Eyes of God, tune in for another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace To You Weekend.
created to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. Trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation, chapter number seven. The church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation together, forever, with saints of all kinds. Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine. This is exactly what God has designed. When God made me and you, let's go. Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. Evolutionists must believe that sometime in the distant past, life came from non-life. The only real evidence given for this claim is the simple fact that, well, life exists. It must have come from somewhere, and they won't even consider the possibility of a creator. So, life must have come to be by a natural spontaneous event. Now, scientists have been trying to create life in the lab for decades, and they've pretty much gotten nowhere. But that's not surprising. Such an idea goes against everything we observe. What we see is that life comes from other life. That's the actual science. And that confirms what we'd expect, starting with God's Word. 
Get answers to your questions about origins, history, and the Bible when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph, and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display, and it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero when his name is Jesus. We kick it old school. 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 
Information of Life. This is Ken Ham, the CEO of the ministry behind the popular Answers Bible Curriculum. How did all the incredible variety of life come to be? Well, evolutionists will say by millions of years of evolution. They claim small, gradual changes created new kinds of organisms. But there's a major problem with that idea. Life is more than just our physical features working together. Life requires information. You see, our DNA is an incredibly complex information system, one that must be read and understood in order for it to work. But how does something immaterial like language evolve by natural processes? It can't. Information only comes from other information. It's never been observed to arise by chance. Let's look to Genesis for answers. There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
Jesus Christ came and paid it all when our Lord was crucified. Before this time, our sin and vice meant we could only come to God with fear. But now through faith in the risen Christ, we can pray and God will hear. And though we can't see him, he's close not far. So it really doesn't matter how old you are. Because of Jesus, the heavenly Father smiles on you because you're now his child. Does information evolve? This is Ken Ham, and our popular life-size Noah's Ark is located in northern Kentucky. Yesterday we learned that information only comes from other information. 
Now inside each of your cells is the most complex information system known to man, DNA. It's essential to life. Think of it this way. If you delete all the software from your smartphone, what do you get? A useless phone. The materials that build the phone are useless without the information to tell it what to do. And the software to operate your phone didn't come from nowhere. It was designed by an intelligence. It's the same with DNA, just infinitely more complex. Just as we'd be foolish to believe software came about by itself, so it would be foolish to think information in DNA evolved. You can trust God's Word. Find faith-affirming answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
Life, irreducibly complex. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truths of God's Word. A huge problem for evolution is how complex life is. And not just complex, but irreducibly complex. Here's an example of what I mean. In order to function, nearly every creature requires three very different kinds of molecules. And none of them can function without the other two. DNA depends on both RNA and proteins to function. RNA depends on DNA and proteins. And proteins depend on DNA and RNA. So all three of these had to be in the same place all at the same time for them to function. It's irreducibly complex. These mutually dependent systems couldn't have evolved. They were created. God's creation is incredible. Discover more about all He's made when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find resources for the whole family at AnswersRadio.com.
It's a heart issue. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. This week we've seen that evolution faces so many challenges that it's, well, impossible. Life doesn't come from non-life. Information doesn't come from non-information. And complexity can't evolve in a slow step-by-step process. So then, why do so many people believe in evolution? Ultimately, it's a heart issue. The Bible says that unbelievers' hearts are darkened. They love darkness rather than light, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's why people refuse to believe the obvious, that God created everything. You see, the book of Romans says it's obvious from the creation that there's a creator. It's only those who suppress the truth who can't see it. Plan your trip to the popular Ark Encounter-themed attraction by going to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. You're a cheerful giver, aren't you? If you're not, you're supposed to be, according to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, which reads, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give up. Before we get to the cheerful bit, did you notice Paul's definition of giving? Please note, he did not say give 10%. Why? In the Old Testament, there were multiple tithes, which totaled, give or take, about 23 and a third percent, which were given as, if you will, a tax for the running of the nation, the running of the temple, the taking care of the poor. Old Testament tithing was never just 10%. Furthermore, the Old Testament itself makes it clear. Pay your taxes and then give to God whatever you want to give. And that is precisely what Paul is admonishing and challenging us to do in the New Testament. Why? Why doesn't Paul just say, give this percent and be done with it? Uh, We've already done the math, and all you need to do is just follow the formula. It's pretty simple. If somebody has a ton of money and they only give 10%, well, they could probably give more. They aren't feeling the effects of sacrificial giving, and it is not coming from that cheerful heart we are going to be warned we must have. On the other hand, I would also suggest the reason that Paul does not give us a percentage when it comes to giving are for the sake of those folks who don't have a lot. If somebody is really, really, really poor, I mean, we're talking hand-to-mouth poor here, they can't give 10%, or they are currently in debt. They have no money to give. They can't give what they don't own, and they can't give to keep incurring more debt with the hopes that God's going to get them out of it. Therefore, Paul tells every Christian, you are supposed to give what you want, and it should not be under compulsion. Instead, it should be cheerful. Back to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, begrudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Sermons shouldn't be, you gotta give. Why? Because somebody's going to give reluctantly. Okay, well, I guess I've got to be given because I've just been guilted into this. No, we give 
because our guilt has been removed. The question, of course, is how then do we become cheerful givers? So glad you asked. Scoot over to the apparently unhitched Old Testament where we are going to see how it is that a group of people, the nation of Israel, were cheerful givers. The book is Nehemiah, the Jewish people. They've been dispersed. They have been brought back into the land. The wall has been built. The temple has been built. And then we see the key to giving. The Bible is toted out. The laws of Moses are read and explained. This is our demonstration in the Old Testament of expository preaching. For hours at a time, the people would stand while somebody with a podium would read the Bible, the words of Moses from the Pentateuch, and then they would explain it. And what was the response? Glad you asked. From Nehemiah chapter 10, we also imposed on ourselves the obligation to contribute yearly a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. What was the response to all that preaching? Answer, cheerful, voluntary, not under compulsion, and not reluctant giving. That is how we become cheerful givers. You Read the Bible. You hear preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the laws that the folks in Nehemiah's day were celebrating as the people of God. We can actually celebrate and give more cheerfully because we don't have just a fuzzy picture of the Messiah. We have the real deal. You and I can study about Jesus, if you will, staring into his face. And the more we do that, the more we are going to desire to give cheerfully. That is always how it works. And speaking of work, that's what we see in Nehemiah 10 also. Not only did the people hear the reading of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, and then respond by going, we got to give, they also wanted to work. They came up with a plan to provide the firewood for the burning of the fire on the altar, which was to never go out. The people of Israel, hearing the word of God, gave and served. Do you see the pattern and the preeminence of preaching? Consider Paul all over the place in the New Testament. When you read through your epistles, Get ready for outbursts of praise, doxologies that come when? After theologies. Consider 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is writing to the young preacher. Right up front, he's very happy that he, the chief of sinners, should not have been shown mercy. But he was shown mercy by the grace of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he yawned and went back to writing. Not a chance. Now, to God. What is he doing? He is starting a doxology. Now to the king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be power and honor forever and ever. What do we see in First Timothy?
31, a doxology in response to theology. That is your key for cheerful living and cheerful giving. That was Todd Friel from Wretched. You know, find out more about him, go to wretched.org and hear the radio show and, and TV show. And at that from YouTube, it says, uh, do, you, do you want more joy? So check that out. And I think that's it. And next one I'm going to do, this is the one-minute apologist here on Trippy Tori. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Bobby here and excited to have David Wood on the program with Act 17 Apologetics. David, just so thankful for your work. You're doing a great job out there, and uh, we just love you and your ministry, and uh, just thankful to have you on the program. Uh, look, uh, you've been very open about um, your testimony, your story, how God saved you in prison for uh, you know, attempting to take uh, the life of your father. And uh, we appreciate that vulnerability, that transparency that you're willing to talk about this. I think one of the things that uh, it, it leaves questions, and I think that we'll be able to, in a string of videos, be able to help people understand how this fits into the moral law. Uh, but help us to understand kind of the difference first of a sociopath and a psychopath. Well, uh, the, the terms are often used interchangeably, and for years I've, I've used them uh, interchangeably, but... Um, there is a distinction. Uh, there is a technical distinction. Uh, they both fall under the umbrella of a disorder called antisocial personality disorder, which I was diagnosed with that when I was 18 years old, but they don't tell you what that is. So when I saw it, I just thought, okay, they're saying I'm antisocial or something like that, or I, I don't get along with people well. That's, I, that's true. I don't always get along with people well. So I didn't know how severe <laughs> that is. Uh, it wasn't until years later after I had gone through mental hospitals and jails and prisons and was in college taking a psychology class, and I was actually reading about this. And I was like, whoa, that is like a perfect description of my life. So antisocial personality disorder um, it basically means you don't form normal emotional attachments to people generally. Uh, you lack empathy, so when people are going through stuff, it, it, doesn't, it affects normal people. It doesn't affect you. Uh, people who have this generally uh, don't respect the rights of other people, don't, don't have any respect for the rights of other people or their feelings, things like that. And so um, they can get, end up getting in a lot of trouble. But here's where the distinction comes in. Um, the, the, the classic saying is a hot-headed sociopath, cold-blooded psychopath. And so the sociopath is generally hot-headed, easily irritated, uh, violent outbursts if someone annoys him, uh, has trouble holding down a job, can end up as like a social outcast and so on. Uh, psychopath more cold, calculating, manipulative uh, psychopaths will generally learn to mimic other people's emotional responses so that they can blend in and so uh, sociopaths are considered a less severe, to have a less severe form of antisocial personality disorder uh, but they're easier to spot because they, they end up flipping out over things or not being able to hold jobs whereas the, the psychopath will actually blend in so they're kind of harder to spot wow thanks for sharing that distinction Are there any benefits to being a Christian who struggles as a psychopath? Um, yeah, some of them, I, I don't know if I'd call them benefits, but there are things like, you know, we all have to experience everyone around us dying at some point, and you never experience the pain. But there's a, you know, there's another sense in which 
I, w I would want to experience the pain, right? I would rather experience um, the pain of someone dying, but it means you don't have to deal with a lot of uh, yeah, grief like that. Um, you, 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 you're, not fr you're not scared in, in most situations that, that most people would be scared in, so you don't, you don't have to live in, in, in fear. You, you, yeah, you, don't get, you don't get anxiety when things are going wrong. You're, you're generally the, the, the coolest-headed person in any situation when things are going wrong. And, you know, from a, depending on what you're doing as a, a Christian, uh, some of those things can actually be helpful. Like, I deal with Islam. Uh, people say they're going to murder me and my family regularly and that they're going to torture me and rape my wife and all these things, and it, it, it just doesn't scare me at all. So it allows you to kind of keep moving forward and not being uh, put down by, you know, things that... Your wife probably doesn't like that, though, right? Or no, 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 no. Most people, most people don't like that, but it allows you to say, look, here's what I'm going to do, and nothing in this world is going to stop me, and you can torture me and kill me, and you're still not going to stop me. So, um, again... You would you would probably you know not want to have the, the psych you know the, the psychopathy you probably yeah. not want to have it, um, but if you've got it you might as well make the best of it that, that you can, and uh, you can face a lot of situations that, that would cause a lot of other people to crumble, and you, you just keep moving forward. You talked a little bit about a distinction between a sociopath and a psychopath. And this kind of gets into the whole moral law. And uh, as somebody who's, uh, you know, been spending the last several years of my Ph.D. working on the moral argument from guilt, uh, I'm interested in your story. And I find that uh, this idea, some people say there's no such thing as objective guilt uh, because there are people who are psychopaths and they don't experience guilt. And I guess my question is, is that true in your opinion? Do they experience guilt? Yeah, well, I, I can't speak for every psychopath on the planet. Sure. Um, but uh, according to the diagnosis, uh, yes, it's generally um, viewed that psychopaths do not experience guilt or remorse. I can say right now that whatever you are feeling, when you feel bad for something that you have done, I've never felt it in my entire life. Not with anything, not with uh, attacking my dad with a hammer. Even to this day, even after becoming a Christian, there's just no whatever you feel. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would, I would in, in my own experience, that's true. Um, but there is a distinction here between psychopaths and, and sociopaths. I mentioned previously that um, sociopaths uh, have a less severe form of antisocial personality disorder. And uh, it, it, it's thought that they... They don't lack a conscience. They have a very weak conscience, whereas psychopaths just seem to lack a conscience. And so um, sociopaths can apparently feel guilt. It's usually related to people who are very close to them. So they might have a close relationship with their, their closest family members or something like that that they could feel guilty about, whereas they wouldn't feel guilty at all about smashing in the face of someone they don't know or something like that. They might feel it with someone who's very close to them. What is the prosperity gospel? If you've ever watched TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, you have no doubt come across the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is uh, led by teachers such as Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, uh, Benny Hinn. Uh, another phrase that's often used with it is the Word of Faith movement. The Word of Faith movement and the prosperity gospel, uh, 
this movement will over-promise and under-deliver. It sets its followers up to become utterly disillusioned. It's a movement by which the leaders continue to grow in riches, but many of the faithful who give out of naivete as they trust in these false teachers, they do not see the hundredfold blessing that they're promised. They're promised that if you sow into the kingdom of God, which usually means sow into their wallet, sow into their financial dreams, that you too will experience these types of blessings. Now, in the scripture, there's nothing wrong with somebody having uh, prosperity, with owning lots of money. Uh, there's something wrong when money owns us, right? The, the root of all evil, right, is the love of money, not having money. Uh, we're warned to watch out for uh, what greed can do in our lives in the scripture. Now, in reaction to the prosperity gospel, uh, you'll end up with some who fall into the camp of the poverty gospel. But we're not told either of those things, poverty or prosperity. It's a personal gospel in the scripture. We're all to follow Jesus according to what he asks of us. For some people, he might give prosperity in order to be generous. For others, he might ask to take a bow of poverty in order to not uh, let the money have a hold on this particular individual, right? The rich young ruler. Go sell all that you have, then come follow me. Because money was getting in the way. Each of us have to figure out what it is that God's asking us in following him. What does carrying the cross mean for each of us in obedience? But the prosperity gospel, it'll often come along and say, hey, just speak it. Name it and claim it. And you'll get it. But nothing can be further from the truth. We don't have that kind of power. Our words can't be spoken and create that kind of uh, dynamite. So we need to be leery of those who want to just fly around in their leer jet at the expense of the church. Be careful. The prosperity gospel is certainly heretical. Nothing wrong with prosperity, but there's a lot wrong with the prosperity gospel. Winning music empire. Charismatic, young, and fashionable leaders and celebrity attendees from Justin Bieber to Chris Pratt. But it's why Hillsong has grown into one of the most influential megachurches in the world and one of the most controversial. You know who's going to give you peace? It's going to be the expert. His name is Jesus. Here tonight, Hillsong, the church in the headlines for the wrong reasons. A sex scandal that reached the highest ranks of the global megachurch has forced its Australian founder, to resign. Founder Brian Houston has quit the megachurch following an internal investigation revealing inappropriate behavior towards two women. I want to address this subject, and the reason I want to address it is because before I came to the U.S. in 1989, I came from a Hillsong stream, what we call a stream of churches that had very similar doctrine to Hillsong. And I noticed that the leadership of all these different churches were falling into sexual sin. I actually preached in Frank Houston's church, Brian Houston's father's church, back in 1980. So I'm very familiar with Hillsong and the doctrines they preach, and that's what I want to address. I want to look into what's happened, but not to look at the juicy details, but to see what the problem is and how to fix it. Back in 1982, I was an associate pastor. I was sitting in my office. I was reading a portion of sermon by Charles Spurgeon. And by the way, this is around the time these pastors were falling into sexual sin. And not only that, 90% of our converts were falling away from the faith. So something was radically wrong. So this is very timely. Spurgeon's sermon went something like this. 
What will you do when the law comes in terror? When the trumpet of the archangel shall tear you from your grave? When the eyes of God shall burn their way into your guilty soul? When the book shall be opened and all your sin and shame shall be punished? Can you stand against an angry law in that day? I thought to myself, what was Spurgeon doing? He was using the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to bring the knowledge of sin. Two days later, I was in a small church about 100 miles from our home. And I was reading Galatians 3:24 and preparing for the sermon. And I read this. Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But I read it subconsciously as this. Therefore, the law was Israel's schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. But that's not what it said. And I remember thinking it says to bring us to Christ. And I thought, is it legitimate to do what Spurgeon was doing and use the Ten Commandments, the moral law, to bring the knowledge of sin and drive sins to the Savior? So I ran to a local thermal pool. It was a very cold day. sat in this hot pool and began praying for the person who was sitting next to me. Uh, determined to share my testimony but incorporate the law and I did the gentleman sat next to me and I began talking to him and then said how I became a Christian but incorporated the fact that I'd looked at women and lusted after them and committed adultery in my heart and on judgment day God would bring my sins out and I'd be condemned then up in hell and that's why I needed a savior and he stood to his feet and I'll never forget it because he was steaming and he looked down at me and he said I've never heard that put so clearly in all my life it was like a light went on in his mind, and a light went on in mine. I thought the law brought to him a knowledge of sin. It gave him understanding. And so I began studying the gospel proclamation of men like Spurgeon, Wesley, Moody, Whitfield, Luther, and others that God used down through the ages, and saw that they said this, if you preach the gospel without proceeding it with a moral law, you will most certainly fill the church with false converts. And that's exactly what's happened in Hillsong and the stream that I was in. We filled the church with false converts. Instead of preaching the straight gate and the narrow way, we preached a wide gate and said it's easy to give your heart to Jesus. When Jesus said the exact opposite. He said straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. Broad is the path that leads to destruction and many go in that way. That going into the wide path is false conversion. People who come void of any knowledge of sin because sin, righteousness, and judgment isn't preached. And so the church is filled with tears among the weak, foolish virgins among the wise, bad fish among the good, and goats among the sheep that will be sorted out on the day of judgment. What we must do is go back to biblical gospel proclamation. Remember Mark 10, verse 17, the rich young ruler came running to Jesus and said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't say, oh, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He said, why do you call me good? He reproved them because man has no understanding of the righteousness of God. They think they're good. Every man will proclaim his own goodness, as Scripture says. So what did Jesus do? He gave them five of the Ten Commandments. He said, you know the commandments. Why did you do that? Because the law brings the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. He said, by the commandment. Sin became exceedingly sinful. What the law does is it prepares the heart for grace. If your pastor is not preaching biblical evangelism, you need to hold him accountable. Say, Pastor, I never hear you talk about hell. I never hear you talk about judgment day. I never hear you talk about sin or open up the Ten Commandments to show what sin is. Remember Paul and Felix who preached righteousness, temperance, and judgment, and Felix trembled. And that's what's missing. Do you remember the stories of Prophet Nathan and David? God commissioned Nathan to go and reprove David.
David had violated the Ten Commandments. He'd coveted his neighbor's wife, lived a lie, stole his neighbor's wife, committed adultery, committed murder. So what did Nathan do? Did he come in front of the king and say, boy, this is scary. The king could have me stoned to death if I upset him. I'll just change the message a little. Uh, David, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He didn't do that. He was faithful. He told the story of a man who stole another man's lamb. And when David said, that man will restore fourfold and he will die, that's when Nathan said, you are the man. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? And David said, I've sinned against heaven. And then came the gospel where Nathan said, Nevertheless, you shall not die, for God has put away your sin. And then we have the penitent prayer of Psalm 51, where David said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sin. That's what's lacking at the altar. There's a lack of the fear of God. There's a lack of trembling, a lack of the knowledge of sin. What we've got to do is go back to say, what does Scripture say? What is the pattern of Scripture? Like Paul in Romans chapter 2, you who say you shall not steal, do you steal? You who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? With Jesus and the rich young ruler, with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, opening up the law and making it honorable. I hope you don't see me as having a judgmental spirit, as a kind of a holier-than-thou pointing the finger. I'm a wretched sinner who's looked at Scripture and say this is not according to the pattern, and I've got to get back to biblical evangelism. Hey, thanks for listening to me, and God bless you. Make sure you check out the Living Waters podcast and this. It's everything I've ever learned in 50 years of apologetics and evangelism. Get your copy of the Evidence Study Bible and check out the starter kit while you're there at livingwaters.com. Want to see biblical evangelism in action? Then you've got to see what happened to Jessica. So amazing. Click here now. That was Ray Comfort with uh, Living Waters. And you can see that at Living Waters on their YouTube page. And that's their channel. And then also LiviaWaters.com. Check that out. Before that, we had uh, Noah, the one-minute apologist. You can see that on YouTube as one-minute apologist. So check that out. And right now, I'm going to invite you to get social with us. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. 
Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Cantroa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.